Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Scriptures out of John 6, 15 through 121. Perceiving then, or it's just 21, excuse me. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three hours or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the water, on the sea, and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Father, I pray that you would just remind us that that you are the cornerstone, God, that everything in our life should be built around you. God, I pray that you would just assume that place, pierce through our hearts, break down every barrier. God, we need you there. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Well, if you think about the last year from now, what it's been like. There's been no shortage of confusion, struggle, strife, sadness, loss, depression. There's been no shortage of death, chaos. Really, if you think about it, there's just been so much fear of the unknown, so much worry. And when you, when you come to a stage in life like that, it's, it's really easy for us to do kind of one of two things, to to kind of fall or succumb to that chaos, to, to, to give ourselves to that sadness or loss or, or depression or, or worry or unknown things, or to, to look for the hope in the things in life. And I, I know for myself, there's been many times over the last year where I have lost sight of the hope that was mine in Jesus Christ. The, the text that we're in that, that Kyle just read for you guys is, is a, such a beautiful text that honestly, there are so many things that God could show us and, and I believe shows us in this text that we could take from it. But I wanted to focus in just kind of on one aspect of this story, this bit of history that we have. You understand this story even a little bit more when you combine it with the account in Mark chapter 6 and Matthew 14. This is one of those texts that it's, it's beneficial for us to go to both of those texts, to all of those texts to understand what is being communicated and said. Because John isn't really that too concerned with Peter's aspect in the story. If you go to this and you understand, like, Peter also walks on the water in this time. John's not really concerned about that, but John, again, is, is hyperly focused on the deity of Christ, the story of Jesus and who he is and life that comes through him. He's, he's pointedly to that. And so this section of Scripture, we all know Jonathan last week taught the feeding of the 5,000 that was just before this. Jesus ends up, we find out from the context of the other Gospels, that, that Jesus is coming to this hillside. He's coming to this spot because the news of John the Baptist, 
being beheaded and killed in prison is, has come to him. And so he's escaping where he was to go find a place to retreat, to go spend time in prayer, to be alone. And, and as they jump on the boat and they kind of cut this northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, just so you guys know, it's, it kind of looks, I've been there, it looks kind of like an oversized Lucky Peak, but it's like 13 miles long, four to six miles wide in this day. And it's, it's about 700 feet below sea level and there's hills all the way around it. Everything's above it coming into the Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus and the disciples make their way in the boat, kind of cutting the corner of the lake to this section over here, the, the, just the, all the people kind of run and follow Jesus so that when he gets there, he starts teaching them. And it gets late in the day, and then he has to, this is the whole feeding thing that happens. And the disciples were a massive part of seeing something absolutely astronomical. And, and Jesus uses them as they reach into the, the basket to feed these people, these thousands of people. And they realize that they just keep having food upon food upon food upon food. And so that's what comes into this section. And Jesus wants to retreat. He wants to get away to kind of spend some time with God, to spend some time in prayer. I think it's interesting too, and this is another point that we could spend a whole day on, which we're not, I'm just going to mention it, but I think such perseverance for prayer in Jesus's life should cause us to pause and think about our own prayer life. Jesus was in perfect communion with God. I mean, like he had perfect relationship with God, and he still made every effort to go and be alone with God in prayer. He, if Jesus always does the will of the Father, needed to pray for such lengthy period of times, how much more should we be spending time in prayer? But Jesus doesn't get this moment. He, the, the, the miracle happens, and Jonathan did such a brilliant job. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it if you weren't here last week. And, and one of the aspects that comes in this, in verse 15, we see that, that the crowd is amazed by his miracle, amazed by the food, amazed that they, they're, they're fed and they're full and they're happy and there's leftovers, that the crowd forcefully wants to make Jesus king. But we know, reading into the story, we know that the, the king that they wanted wasn't really the king that Jesus is. They wanted an, a version of a king that would free them from Rome, that would make their bellies happy, and that was pretty much it. They didn't want to give their lives to this king. They didn't want to worship him for who he truly was. But what changed this text for me is a few years ago, reading through this as I was studying it, what massively, dramatically changed what I believe the understanding that we are to take from this text was in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 23, the same story. He says, immediately, this is right after he fed the disciples and the crowd wants to crown him as king, and the, or the disciples fed all the crowd. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, head back to where they came from while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. A couple things that are fun to think about, like how do you dismiss a crowd of thousands of people that are trying to forcefully make you a king? That's a, that's a whole other miracle that there's no context in. Like what does he go away? I'm not it. Oh, okay, cool. If you're saying that, like what, what does he say to do that? But he does that. Does he just disappear? But the word that changes for me is that immediately he made, and this word made is actually to forcefully compel or to command something to happen. Jesus commands his disciples, forces them to get in the boat and get out of there. And I think there's a couple reasons why, but I think the biggest one is he doesn't want his disciples to get wrapped up in the false understanding of who he is. So he's freeing them from the burden of like, look, I don't want you to, I don't even want you to get in this. Now think about if you're from the disciples, you've already experienced animosity. You've had friends and family make fun of you and leave you because you're following this man, Jesus Christ. And finally, you're getting, he's getting some recognition. Finally, the, the crowds want to do it. And I mean, 5,000 just in men, so 15, 20,000 people are like, he's our king. Like, that's the beginning of an army. 
I think if I were them, it'd be like, it's about time he's getting the accolades he deserves. It's about time that he gets the representation that he needs and the people that want him. And so I think Jesus, out of understanding who his disciples are, he says, no, 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 you cannot fall prey to this. And so he pushes them, gets them in the boat, says, get away from this. This is, this is not who I am. We know that the crowd, ultimately, like Jonathan said last week, this is the same crowd that yells, crucify him. And Jesus says, no, I don't want my disciples to be any part of this. But because he made them get into the boat, it wasn't just because of them not making him a king in a false kind of way. But I think there's something else. See, did Jesus know the storm that was coming? Of course he knew the storm was coming. Something to understand in the Sea of Galilee when you're there, it, because of the height of all the hills around it, the cold air will always come down, and it'll stir that lake up, kind of like the, I don't know what they're called, but they're at those water parks, and I hate them because you always feel like you're drinking water, you know, like the wave pool or whatever, like it just kind of just, bleh, like it stirs that up. If you've been on Cascade Lake when it happens, the same idea, just twice as big. And, and the horns of Haddam is this, ca- this canyon that comes in from the northern side, and the winds would just come zipping through there and just, just stir. When that's coming in and the wind's coming down, it would just make massive three-foot white cap sails. To this day, it still happens on this lake. These big old storms will come in out of nowhere. And Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat. These are, most of them, seasoned fishermen that lived on this lake. They've experienced this lake. They grew up on this lake. They knew all about this place. And then Jesus retreats and goes to pray. Jesus knew the storm was coming, and then he commands his disciples to get in the boat. I wrote it this way in my notes. Being in a place of obedience is to be in a place of safety, no matter how difficult the circumstances. See, if you were the disciples in this situation, you'd be questioning why Jesus made you get into a boat that had a storm all of a sudden hit out of nowhere and then spent hours doing it. But being in a place of obedience is to be in a place of safety no matter what the circumstances are. That's the best spot we can be. Even John 15 later on, it says, obey me, abide in me, and my love will remain. Remain in my love. Being in a place of obedience is where God wants us. A myth we must dispel in this belief is that obedience means an easy life. I've obeyed you, God. Therefore, you must do this, 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 as if God is in some kind of transactional relationship with us like he owes us anything. But the disciples, they, they get into the boat. They go, and this is where it's, it's crazy. It says in, in Matthew and Mark, we see both of them, that's the fourth watch. Now that means that sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That, that the disciples have been rowing in the sea. Now, they were planning on taking, just kind of cutting the tip over of the, of the lake, cutting the tip this way, but because of the winds, it had pushed them more and more into the middle. And they say that by this time, they're about three or four miles from the shore where Jesus was, in the middle of the water. And these are seasoned fishermen. These are fishermen that I bet, I'd be willing to bet that when the storm came, they started telling stories. Do you remember when Graham Pappy and they had all these like, I remember back in this day, and they were talking about all those different things. But somewhere along the way as they're rowing, I guarantee you they got tired and more tired, and more tired, and more scared, and more scared, and more scared. And pretty soon, all their tricks that they had, all their ideas, all their wisdom, it meant for nothing. And they were strongly beaten against the wind, is the way Mark says it. They were beaten, and the water's coming into the boat, and someone's having to bail the water out. And they're probably, they're probably fighting. They're like, you're, you're rowing wrong. And Peter's like pushing them, get out of the way, I'll figure this out. And they're, they're relying on their own strength to go. And for seven to nine hours or so, they are rowing. Now, I don't know, some of you... Some of you CrossFit people are like, man, I can roll a mile in like six minutes, check it out, right? Like, like this should have been a, this should have been at best an hour-long journey in that wooden boat. 
at worst, maybe an hour and a half. And here they are, seven to nine hours later, in this storm, on the water, without their Messiah. And they're rowing and rowing and rowing. And then in verse 19, it says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. The, the Gospel of Mark and, and, and Matthew say it a little bit differently. It says it this way in Matthew 14. It says, But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Now, something to understand is there was this myth, there was kind of this myth and this idea behind that all the people that had died on the lake of the Sea of Galilee, that they would kind of, they were, they were ghosts in the sea. And so this was kind of the, the wives' tale, the things that would be said over and over again. So them saying it's a ghost was like, wow, this is like, it's a ghost. And they were really frightened. Jesus, here's the part that Jesus is walking out to them on the water. These disciples remember, in Matthew chapter 8, we, get, we know that before this, the same sea, there, that Jesus is taking a snooze. He's napping in the boat, and the, the water starts going crazy. And they freak out, and they go down, and they ask, like, don't you even care, Jesus? And Jesus kind of like, <gasps> wakes up and is like, quiet, and the winds stop. And he looks at him and says, why do you doubt? Oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? So here they are on this sea where they know once before they can remember, they have to remember, like, man, I, I, maybe at one point we're like, I wish Jesus was here. Because, like, remember that one time you were snoozing? Or, or maybe that was a fluke. But at this point, the disciples have seen Jesus do a lot of things that don't make sense to their minds. And here's Jesus walking on the water out to him. And Jesus, instead of calming the storm, I like to think that in the seven to nine hours that Jesus is praying, some of it is he's praying for them. Because Mark 6 says, it says he saw them. In three or four miles plus the hillside beyond, like, like this is a, this is a, a, a divine seeing, not just a physical seeing. I like to think that he was up there praying for them, praying for perseverance, praying for strength, praying for them to, to not lose faith. And Jesus, instead of calming the sea, why, why does he do this? Why does he walk out on the sea? And I don't know if you've ever tried to picture this in your mind, but like the water's like doing three-foot swells. Like picture someone trying to just walk across the wave pool. Does he like go up and down? Does he kind of just move smoothly? Like, like what's happening here, right? You have no idea. Like I'm, I don't know. My mind goes there. I don't know if yours does. Well, you're welcome. Now yours does, okay? And so he's going back and forth, and, and they were not making any headway. They weren't getting anywhere. They were wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. In Mark and, and Matthew, he says it just a little bit differently. He says, take heart. The take heart means to be joyful. It is I, it is I, be joyful. The phrase it is I can mean one of two things, and scholars are kind of all over the board. It can be that it is the, it is the I am statement. And that this, this, this whole miracle, this whole bit of history reeks of pointing to the Exodus story, right? Crossing the sea of the, the Red Sea, like moving these things, like all of these things. There's psalm after psalm that talks about God has power over the water, has power over the, the elements of the earth. So there's so much theophany, there's so much speaking of, the, of God into this text that Jesus is this God that, that could be there. But it could also just be that he's just saying, yo, it's me, it's I. What's interesting is he says, it's I, Take heart. It is, it's I, do not be afraid. It's me, be joyful. It's me, 
Be excited. Be encouraged. And again, I, maybe this is just my own limited brain kind of reading into the scripture. If I had spent seven to nine hours trying to not die, I'd like to think I'd want to be joyful in that moment of seeing Jesus, but the way with which he's coming to us doesn't make sense because the storm's still happening, the boat's still having to be held, the boat's still having to be emptied of the water that's coming in on it, and everything's still going, and Jesus is just making his way, just walking on over to us. And this is where the story diverges. See, Jesus doesn't calm the storm as he comes to them. He comes to them in the chaos. And many of you, over this last year, you've been saying, Jesus, calm the storm, calm the storm, calm the storm. And Jesus is like, no, 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 I'm here. I never left. I'm not gone. I see you. I know what you're at. I know the wind's against you. I know the circumstances are against you. I'm still here, and I'm doing something in the storm that's going to bring about something incredible in you. It's far greater than anything you can imagine. But this is where the book of Matthew adds a whole other aspect of the story. This is the part where Peter Typical Peter, I love him because he shows us that we all have a chance at being a disciple of Jesus at some points. And he gets a bad rap, but Peter does something that, that no other man in history or woman in history has ever done. He walks on water. <laughs> but, but the way he does it to me, we always want to focus in on like, we always want to make the story about Peter and about his faith and his little faith and all that stuff. But the way he does it is, is I think so true to the way that you and I live our lives and probably the way that we operate in and out of in life throughout all of the last year. Peter says to him, Lord, God, if it is you, which is probably better to say it, it, it's written since it is you, God, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, you got to love Peter because that, that makes little to no sense at first when you read it. Like, okay, maybe you could say, Lord, since it's you, can you calm the storm? Lord, since it's you, I'm exhausted. Can you bring some Gatorade? I need to replenish these muscles. Like, whatever, like, whatever he could have, there's, there's a million things he could have said. But instead he said, Lord, since it's you, command me to come to you. And then I love this. I love this. First off, before we go there, when Jesus says, it is I, right before that they thought he was a ghost. But when Jesus says, it is I, they instantly know it's him. And, and I, one of the things I wrote in my notes is like, to be a people that in the middle of chaos, in the middle of difficult circumstances, we'd still know the voice of God. I think that's, I think that's a powerful thing for us to remember. But, but Jesus says to, to Peter, come. Now, again, I'd like to think I'm a man of faith. <laughs> Peter go like 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 right now like okay so do I do I do I like do I step over do I like I mean do I touch the water like does he what does he do does he just and I, I mean it's Peter so he probably just jumps off the edge because that's just kind of his his thing but like I feel like yeah exactly that's right and I feel like I feel like he just jumps out and starts walking on the water and then just for a moment have you ever thought what are the other disciples thinking at this point like Philip's over there like hey Jesus can you do this with more than one person at a time like can I can I join in or are they, what I like to think, and again, this is conjecture, I like to think they're still trying to man the boat. Oh, come on, Peter. We're still rowing here. We've got to save ourselves while Jesus is right there. But Peter, and again, he gets bad rap, but he displays something that is so powerful. For him, it is better to be out in the storm in the chaos close to Jesus than in the boat without him. And again, we give him such a bad rap, but I mean, I, I don't know if I have faith to ask that question. And so Peter starts walking on water. I don't know if he like takes one step, if he does like a little pirouette or like, what does he, I mean, like does he do? He's got an umbrella. He's like, I, again, I don't know what's happening here. But here he is, he's walking on this water to Jesus who's walking towards him. 
And in this moment, the disciples are, are manning the boat. The storm is still going. So is Peter going up and down or is he going, I, again, we don't know what's happening here, right? But he's walking on the water three miles into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And the storm is still going. The wind is still going. And it's this incredible moment where if you could just have a still and say, okay, what was going through the mind of each person at this spot? And I picture Peter. He's walking on the water. So he gets out of the boat and he walks on the water and he came to Jesus. But then here's the, here's the part. But when he sees the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. Now, I don't want to be too technical, but you don't see wind. You see the effects of wind. Just like I would argue, we don't really see our fears. We see the potential effects of them in our own heart. So this last year, when we've all been riddled with some kind of fear in our health, fear of, of government, fear of financial depravity, fear of loss of relationship, whatever fear it is, in all of those fears, I would argue that we're not actually seeing the outcome of them. We're just seeing the effects of what may come, and it's, it's a complete control issue. Here, here Jesus is face-to-face -face with Peter on the water, and Peter's taking who knows how many steps in the storm, he's not sinking, and he begins to sink, which, by the way, have you ever been in water and begun to sink? Like, no, when you're in water, you sink. You don't, like, slowly sink. So, like, is Peter, like, slowly starting to go down? Like, what's happening here, right? But he begins to sink. Why? Because he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he starts seeing the effects of wind. He allows the fear of what the wind may do to him and what the water may do to him get in the way of the trust in Jesus who has held him up in the storm. Peter doubts his circumstances. He doubts his ability. Just like we don't really know what our fears will give us to, but we see them all the way through. And the what ifs, and the what ifs, and the what ifs, and the what ifs are this proverbial wind in our life that take our eyes slowly more and more and more off of Jesus, our Savior, and onto those things. We forget that Jesus is with us. He's not leaving us. He's doing something so powerful in your life. Stay the course. He is no further from you today. If you are his, he is no further from you today than he was a year ago when all this stuff started. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how difficult your circumstances get, Jesus is not any further from you. And then Peter says three powerful words that I wonder if they had said them nine hours earlier if the circumstances would have been different. He says, Lord, save me. That's it. Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus is in his hands and pulls him up. And then Jesus has this conversation with him. He's like, oh, oh, you have little faith. Now, many of us see that as a chastisement. I don't. I see it more like a parent to a kid. You were so close. Oh, why did you doubt? You had it. You were walking. Like, why? You were so close. You had it. You trusted me to get out of the boat. You trusted me to take those first five steps. Why did you stop trusting me? I'm right here. I'm right here. And then those three powerful words, Lord, save me. Immediately, another miracle happens. The boat that was in the middle of the sea is on the bank where it was supposed to be. The storm is gone and everyone's in the boat. Immediately, everything happens and changes. From those three words. And I know what some of you are saying. Like, I've been saying, Lord, save me all year long. Lord, save me in this relationship. Lord, save me financially. Lord, save me for my health. And all year long, I've been saying it, and he's not showing up. 
and you keep fighting and you keep fighting and you keep fighting. You keep rowing and rowing and rowing because you've lost sight of the fact that he's doing something in the storm. He's doing something in your heart far greater than what is going to be done just sitting on the sidelines. He's, he's put you in a spot. He said, no, go. I'm going to do something, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be difficult. But guess what? In the end, you will worship me for who I am, not just what you think I should be. We see this. We see that, that in Matthew 14.33, it says this. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They worshiped him for who he was, not the king that they wanted to make. You know, years later, the Apostle Peter, I mean, God did amazing things through him. Years later, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter says this, and I can't imagine how wonderful this must have been to write, knowing the life he lived with the Lord. But just, just put that in the context. This is the guy that stepped out of the boat that started sinking, and in the moment, is like, oh, you little faith, you doubted again. And this is what he says in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. He says, in this you rejoice. In what? Though now for a little while, yeah, for some time, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, just so you guys know, these trials are not trials because of our own stupidity. These are trials that are brought onto you. A pandemic was brought onto you. Financial disparity is brought onto you. Some of you have made those decisions, like you made a decision to have financial issues because of, of poor choices. The various trials you're talking about are things that you have zero control over. And this is what he says. He goes on and says, well, in this you rejoice. Why? Because you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've been amazed in my own life how often it has escaped me that the difficulties I'm going through are things that God is doing to bring about a more genuine faith that I didn't think was possible myself. We so often want to run from it. It is, it is virtually impossible to stand in obedience and trust to God when there is fear of something else in the way. Do you ever think about that? Peter is not going to trust Jesus when he has fear of the wind, just like you and I are not going to trust him with the fear of everything else in our life. When fear comes in, it takes away the trust in, in God, which will take us away from obedience to him. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, when you can't trace God's hand, you have to trust his heart. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, this light momentary affliction, and I understand it. You're like, wait, well, this does not feel light and it does not feel momentary. But when your entire life is a vapor, everything is momentary. This light momentary affliction is what? Is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Hear that. There is nothing in this world that will compare to the weight of glory that will become Nothing beyond all glory. And these things, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Psalm 9, 9 says that God is a stronghold. He is a stronghold in times of trouble. Jesus is, one of Jesus' purposes, I believe, for walking on water, the one I want to focus on today, is I believe to demonstrate that his loving willingness to do whatever is necessary to rescue his children and in doing so, creates in his children the proper response to who he is. Really, the, the question he's asking is, is this, this section has so many interesting things about it, right? But it's almost like Jesus is putting his disciples in the spot to answer the question, will I be king in the storm as well? 
You want to make me king when you have food and your bellies are full and everything's happy and everyone likes me. Will I be king in your life when the storm's going on too? And he, he, he put his disciples in the place. And that's the only thing that makes sense because he could have easily just while praying going, okay, God, enough. And they would have been fine and made it over the sea and had no, no, no idea. For me, the only thing that makes sense is he put his disciples in the spot saying, right when they wanted to crown him and join the crowd of being the king, saying, will I be king when it's hard in your life? Will I be king when you don't, don't like the outcome? Will you allow me to be king in every situation in your life? Because this is the first time in Matthew, it's the first time they worship him as the son of God. It's the first time they worship him, actually, which in essence, if you think about it, tied to the I am statement, no one was meant to have worship except for God. How often do you find yourself striving tirelessly to solve your own problems instead of falling at the feet of Jesus? How many of us are those disciples rowing hard because we know better? We have the solution. We figured it out. Just one more day, one more work period, one more, one more extra paycheck, one more relationship, one more drink of, of, of alcohol, one more, one more, one more. What are we turning to to try and solve our problems when Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You're in this storm because I'm going to bring about a worship in you that you weren't capable of doing before that storm. How long are you willing to stay in the storm if it brings about a worship to Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? How long are you willing? How, how long are you willing to, to, to be in, the, in the, the eye of the storm? If you know, if you know for certain that Jesus is not far, he is with you the storm isn't going anywhere. How long are you willing to be there if it's going to bring about a true worship of Jesus? A day? Six months? A year? How long? Will you trust Jesus even when it's difficult? Not just when he's a celebrity. I'm always baffled in ministry how often I hear this statement, how often I've done it myself where it's God is so good when everything's going right and when it's difficult. So why God and where are you God and how dare you God? What this shows us is that Jesus was in the middle of their, their struggles. He was there. One scholar says it this way. He says, Peter's faith is much like ours, small and incomplete, a mixture of trust and doubt, Nevertheless, God does not wait for us to have perfect faith before he saves us. The mere presence of authentic trust is required, and periods of doubt say nothing about the legitimacy of our faith. No matter the fervor of your trust this day, know that Jesus is a Savior who rescues those who struggle with doubt. It's okay to doubt. John the Baptist, who Jesus is literally praying for, had a massive doubt. He's in prison. You remember the circumstances? He's in prison. doesn't make sense. He's like, man, I, I thought this would go differently. So he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, were you really the Messiah? Were you really the one? Are you really him? And what does Jesus do? Jesus could have been like, are you kidding me? Whatever, deal with it. No, Jesus takes his disciples and says, follow me around. And he goes and heals the blind. And he goes and heals the lame. And he says, you go tell, Jesus, you go tell John that the blind see and the lame heal and for freedom, and people are being made free. And so the disciples go back to tell John that, and just shortly after that, John is beheaded. Jesus meets him in the doubt. Jesus met Peter in the doubt. Is your life drawn to safety or the storm? And look, it's not bad to want to be safe. It's not bad to try and create safe 
things, but when we think our safety guarantees an outcome, guys, it's, it's, it's not safety we're going for, it's control. And we don't have control. You guys live in Idaho. You should know that the seasons change. I mean, we're like in third winter right now or pre-spring. I don't know which one we're in, right? Change happens all the time. We have no control. You have no control of this pandemic. You have no control of what the government may or may not do. Your fear is taking your eyes off of Jesus and putting it on the wind. And the wind is going to distract you. And trust me, the more you look at the wind, the more you sink best thing is, is even though when we do that, we start to sink, Lord, save me. He's right there to pull us right back out and have that wonderful conversation. Why did you doubt? Don't you realize I'm still here? Don't you realize this? We're going to move to a time of communion, but before we do that, so if you you haven't grabbed the elements, you're welcome to get up and get some. But before we take communion, I want to just encourage you with a, a couple things. First off, If you're here and you don't know who Jesus is, or you're like, man, this whole Jesus thing, like, I'm not so sure I believe this. Like, I'm so glad you're here, and I would just say this very clearly. Like, if you're here, it's not an accident. God is after you. And, And I would encourage you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, to make him the Lord of your life, to crown him as the king, as the savior, as the Messiah. Not not the king that gives you some insurance policy for afterlife, but the king of every aspect of your life, relationally, financially, time, everything he is king of. If you're here today and you're like, man, I have been riddled with fear all year long. I'm telling you right now, you have taken your eyes off of Jesus. You have fixed your gaze on the what ifs and the what ifs and the what ifs. And some of you, you're like, well, I'm just being a good steward of my time. I'm just being prepared. No, you're fearfully trying to control the outcome of your life that you have no control over. Will you rest in Jesus? And so what I wanted to do with communion today is I just wanted us to fix our eyes on the cross. That's really what communion allows us to do is it allows us to to recenter our gaze back where it belongs to recenter on on the life that is brought. When we partake of the bread and juice in faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're being nourished by the body and blood of Christ. This is a powerful thing. This isn't a nonchalant sacrament that we do. This This is a powerful thing that's happening because God is with us. By faith, we partake of the body and blood of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit who pours the life of Jesus Christ into us. The Lord's Supper is a divine gift given by Christ himself to his people to nourish and strengthen us. And many of you, many of you, like myself, we have looked away. We have gotten distracted by the wind. We've, we've allowed ourselves to think that we need some other thing to nourish us or some other thing to, to captivate us. And God is saying, no, I am yours. I am everything. And so when we take communion, we, we, we fix our gaze on him. And so I want to invite you. I want to invite you to do a few things. I'm going to pray for we'll take communion together. I'm going to pray for us. And then the band's going to come up and we're going to sing some more. And we, we gave more time to just sing on the backside. We're not going to break up in prayer, but you're welcome to spend time praying. You're welcome to spend time on your face before the Lord confessing all the fears. If there is anything but the fear of God in you, then you're, <laughs> then you're missing it. Because Jesus tells us that perfect love casts out fear. we want to give you space and time to recognize that no matter how difficult, how horrible your life has been 
over the last year or how horrible it may be in the coming years. Fix your gaze on the cross. Jesus is still with you. He has never left you. If you are his, he will never forsake you. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. You have been anchored into the throne room of God, as Hebrews tells us. You cannot, you cannot escape that. And if you've been flailing in the water like Peter because you took your eyes off of Jesus, just reach your hand out and say, Lord, save me. And watch him bring you back to front and center. And so let yourself come to center. So if you, you need to pray, pray. If you need to sing, sing. If you, need, if you need prayer with someone else, then grab someone to pray with you. If you need to just get on your face before the Lord, then get on your face before the Lord. But whatever you do, just know this. No matter what you're doing, if you are God's, Jesus is no further from you today than he ever has been. He's, he's never gotten, sorry, he's no further from you today than he was a year ago, and he will, know, he will be no further from you elsewhere. Jesus cannot get any nearer to you. There's nowhere you can go that he isn't with you. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, grabbed the bread, broke it, and gave blessing, and said, take Eat, this is my body. Likewise, with the cup, he took, blessed it, and said, drink, this is the blood of the, of the new covenant, which is my blood, poured out for the sins of all. Heavenly Father, we, Father, I, I am sorry. Forgive me for the ways that I have allowed my gaze to be fixed on anything other than you. Lord, our, our hearts can be so easily tossed to and fro when they're not grounded in you. God, as we, as your children have allowed the fear of anything but you seep into our lives, God, forgive us because it takes our trust from you and puts it on other things. So Lord, as we come to you to, to worship, as we come to you to sing, as we come to you to, um, to save us, God, would you remind us of your presence? Would you remind us that you are near, that you see us, that you have not forsaken us? God, for the individuals in the room that continue to stay on the, the side of the water, not get in the boat in obedience to you, to, to run from you, God, I pray that you would wreak havoc with their hearts. For the people that are here that have not given their lives to you, God, I pray that they would surrender, they would confess that you are Lord. No matter what fears they may have, that means, no matter what complications that may do in their life, God, I pray that they would surrender to that. For the individuals in the room that have been um, disgruntled, um, frustrated with you in the storms in their life, God, I pray that you would soften their hearts and see, help them to see that you are doing something in the storm. And for those of us that want to be swayed by the crowd so often and want to crown you as a king that fits in some aspect of our life and not really worship you for who you really are, forgive us for that, Lord. And I pray during this time, whether it's singing or prayer or confession or silence, God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, show us your nearness. You would show us that you have not left us. And I pray that the 
like a, a, a fragile vase in our hearts that's holding on to fear of other things, God, you would, you would shatter that vase so that we could not hold on to those fears anymore. And we just watch them run from us and all that we are left with is you and our eyes fixed on you. No matter how crazy the wind goes, no matter how many reasons there are for us to be fearful, God, I pray that we would just stand on the solid ground of you with our gaze fixed on you and nothing distracting us of the trust in who you are entirely. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God 24-7.